this episode of the World Cup Project, I speak with PSG Talk contributor Daniel Pregbaha about the state of football in Africa, from its roots in the colonization of the continent to the corruption and mismanagement of the continent's national teams. We cover the extreme growth of the game's popularity and what it means to the people of Africa, who gather on weekends to watch the beautiful game. Will an African nation ever win the World Cup? How will the African teams who are competing this season fare in Russia? We talk all of this and more. It's the state of African football, here on the World Cup Project. Daniel Pregbaha, welcome to the World Cup Project. Thank you, Mark. I'm glad to be on. And I am very glad to have you on, because this is going to be one of the shows that I've looked forward to the most. Because I really do feel like it's some un, uh, some untapped territory, and I think we can get into some pretty good discussions about it. But before we begin, just introduce yourself to the listeners. Some of you, them have, are hearing you for the first time. Tell them a little bit about yourself, where you come from, uh, your relationship to football and why you love it so much, what got you introduced to it, and what you're currently doing now when it comes to loving the game or doing any, something about the game. Alright. Um, hi everyone, my name is Daniel. I was I used to be pretty much a regular on the site. And I have appeared on the podcast a couple of times, but I think for over the year I've actually reduced my inputs a bit. I'm from um, Nigeria and um, I think my love for the games out there from pretty much when I was young. Um, most of the boys around here are into the sport, so I think it, just, it was just natural for me to just pick a team I liked and just went on with it. And um, since um, I think I think then I, I always wanted to be a footballer at the time, like most kids my age back then. And seeing big strikers usually was what made me fall in love with the game. Guys like Drogba and things like that. So naturally, the first team I actually fell in love with was Chelsea then before going on to become a PSG fan. And um, it's uh, pretty great. It's been pretty great watching the game. And I think over time, my love has developed more and more and more. And I became a really, I became somewhat of a student of the game. But these days, it's what it is. And with more work and more stress, I haven't been really able to get as much stuff in as I would have loved to. But it's actually been, it's actually been great. I still try to write and do some stuff in my free time. But yeah, and... And I think we all get busy now and again, but I do think there's a, just, the game always kind of sucks you back in a little bit. Even if you're busy, even if you got stuff going on in your life, I think the game always just sort of brings you back. Now, I, I really want to get ask you some more just sort of personal questions, if you don't mind. Um, growing up in Nigeria, what is that like? Uh, that might be a naive question for me to ask, but I, I genuinely... I'm genuinely curious, and it's I haven't met a whole bunch of Nigerians in my life, so I, I like to ask just what is that? What was that like? And if you can tie it into sort of a footballing perspective of how you played, you know, when you started watching, how you started watching, all that stuff. Okay, I think um, growing up as a, as a kid is, is pretty fun. You don't you don't um, experience most of the economic things at that time, so you're mainly under your parents. So all of that is out, out of it. But like football is really big here, and I think I started to fall in love as I think early as eight or nine. I think when I really started getting interested in the game was um, at the 2006 World Cup. So we got this um, 
thing from the newspaper where we had like all the groups in and I was recording all the scores, recording all the points. It was really big because my mom used to help me out and stuff like that. So I think that was when my interest started. But the game is giant played almost everywhere. It's played on the streets. And I remember then in school, in my junior classes, we'd have um, paper balls. So every time we had the free period, we were always playing. I think we used to play football almost every day. But football is something you see everywhere. Every kid is talking about football. But mainly foreign clubs, but the sport is really big here. And football is just, it's just, it's a part of the culture. This part is part of the culture. When it comes to sports, football is, football is the main thing. And, um, just quickly, you, um, you went to London for a little while, right? Um, no, Aberdeen. Aberdeen, okay. Um, where did you study over there? Um, that was, uh, I studied, did a master's in oil and gas and surprise management. Perfect, nice. Um, so let's get in. Let's get into this a little bit because I think this topic is. Um, I think there's a lot to cover, and I want to kind of start with a very. Uh, I wouldn't say somber, but I would say. Um, I, I think something that has to be understood. Football, to the mo- for the most uh, part, is an import, just like sort of any kind of cultural, um, any sort of cultural element. Cultural elements get imported and exported around the world. The same way uh, silk does or silk did, the same way, you know, the same way any kind of good gets imported and exported, so does the game of football. Now, football is not a um, traditionally African game in the sense that it did not start in Africa. So I want you to kind of get into sort of a little bit of that backstory and we'll and we'll kind of go we'll kind of start it from there because i do think it's important to kind of understand how the game got to africa in the first place yeah 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 i mean i think that's very important as well because for me i never really i never really looked at this from that perspective once like i was actually preparing for this podcast because like being born in the night is long after the whole colonization i think you don't kind of see those effects anymore but um, it was, I think the colonization was really big, um, the British and all the other countries who came in, it was kind of like a side effect of the of them trying to gain more territory and stuff, so the game came along with them, and I think from there, the Africans just developed real love for the sports, real big love, and I think, yeah, colonization was really big, big, big for us, and I think that's one of the, the good things. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and that's the thing with any sort of um, colonization or any of that sort of um, any sort of that. There's its positives that sort of come along with its overarching negatives. And you look at a map. If you take out a map of Africa from that time, uh, specifically, I'm looking at a map from 1913. You have Belgium in there. You have the British in there. You have the French in there. You have the Germans. You have pretty much every um, European country taking a part of Africa that, quite frankly, didn't really belong to them, but they took it anyway. And we, we, we could spend hours on sort of the history of that, but just sort of talk about how different parts of Africa sort of got the different parts of European culture. So you look at a lot of um, African countries, there's a lot of African countries that speak French. And yeah. just speak on sort of how that sort of developed over time, how how that sort of, I guess, 
move towards the modern day in a sense. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think even till now, um, you would see that this country's affiliations with um, this um, particular people who colonize them is still is still present. Because you see, especially in the League One, for instance, you see a lot of Africans there. Most of them tend to be from this French-speaking countries from Africa. So, like, you see a lot of Cameroonians, there are a lot of Senegalese. And that's how it is. Even in South Africa, where I think the Dutch play a big part, still there's this connection between them. And that kind of that kind of just um, affects the way... Um, that affects the kind of players that develop in these parts. Because still, still till now, most of these players are tied to these countries where they got colonized from. So I guess that's, that's basically... And, and, and do you think that... Um, do you think there's a resentment of that in the sense of... It seems like... And you can, and this is where I want you to kind of speak to, in general, Africans' love for the game of football. And do you think that it's really thought about in that way? Do you think that people kind of... Maybe I'm thinking about it in too much of a... Maybe I'm thinking about it too much and putting more emphasis on it than even, let's say, Nigerians or Senegalese or Cameroonians may have? Well, um, I, don't, I don't think there's, there's people look too much into that, to be honest. It's just um, it's an African game. Everybody just sees it that way. Like, for most of us, we don't really know where this, where this game came from and stuff like that. So people hardly really see the colonization part of it and read much into that, to be honest. Yeah, and that colonization period went from about the, the mid-1800s into the mid-1900s with the end of the Second World War. Now, at the end of the Second World War, what would eventually happen is these countries, these European countries would leave Africa and basically leave the people there to sort of uh, divide out the land for themselves, and let's start talking about the beginnings of African football as a concept, as national teams. So, when you started seeing the first national teams, talk about that and the creation of the uh, Confederation of African Football. Okay. I think um, some, teams, some countries caught on faster than others. Like, I think Egypt was one of the first um, countries who quickly established their national team. I think even before the CAF was formed, a couple of teams had competed in the World Cup before then. So I think I think like likes of Egypt, Ethiopia, I think Ethiopia, they had their federations and things like that. But I think the CAF came together in um, 1957 and it was just like a way to make Africa more represented because like before then they were more so, they were seen as... Um, so I think individually, so the CAF was just a way to bring them together and make them more established. Although, although different countries had like different organizations of football to an extent, but that was just the formation of the CAF was just to bring more light and make Africa on its own as a football football body. So that was, I think, big a big a huge step in the, the development of football in Africa. Yeah, and and if you if you look back at the history of the World Cup initially. 1934, they had a, they did have a team in the 1934 World Cup. That team was, um, I think they had one. Let me see. Egypt. Yeah, Egypt was in the 1934 World Cup. 
And Africa would not have another team in the World Cup until 1970 when it was Morocco. So um, talk about sort of how the game grew from there and these sort of maybe not the Egypts of the world, but how the other African nations started to build up their um, build up their confederations and build up their teams. I think, um, yeah, um, like I said, most of these teams had informal bodies and stuff like that. So once the African Cup of Nations started, it was like we gave these guys more of a more of an impetus to build, to start building like more serious teams and things like that. So like the government started getting more involved, started making available infrastructure, and started paying more attention to this because. At the end of the day, the game, the game became so big and popular that that almost every country wanted to have a, a bit of it, and it still it still goes goes on till now. But the sport has really grown. Yeah, we've seen that African teams are more recognized around the world. We have more talent around the world, and it has just grown, just grown from there ever since. Because the love of the game just keeps pushing, 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 and since it's big here, that it didn't take so it wasn't so hard to get people. Yeah, and let's talk about the African Cup of Nations, which again started in 1957 with the um, with the creation of the CAF, and the most successful teams, I guess the non most success, I guess the most successful team would be Egypt's up there. Egypt's won it five times. Cameroon. Let's talk about Cameroon quickly because they're not in this World Cup, amazingly enough, but they are. Um, they alongside, I would say, them and Egypt are the two most successful teams. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about Egypt and talk a little bit about Cameroon. Yeah, I think Egypt, Egypt, Egypt is quite an interesting team. I think they won it five times, and like while I was in my young ages, and when I used to, because I used to follow the African competitions a lot, it was like it was them that I used to win it every time, and they'd get to the finals with Cote d'Ivoire and things like that. But I think because Egypt started the first, they were the most developed, their league was the most developed, and things like that. I think they have this club over there that's one of the most successful clubs in the world, Al Ali. And although Egypt for Egypt for instance struggled to qualify for the World Cup, was that was quite weird to me at the time because they'd win every, they win almost every African competition. They seemed to bag them, but they just never could make it to the World Cup. But that, and that was mainly because their players love to stay at home and things like that. They hardly went abroad. But for Cameroon, it's quite weird. They are still they are still good. But like you see you see that with African teams, there's other top teams like Ghana and Nigeria. But that consistency is really lacking. And though Cameroon is still regarded as one of the top teams over here, but so they, for for some reason they just didn't make it. Not cause um, not cause the talent has reduced, but mainly due to um, if, um, infrastructure issues and issues from top management. And that has been killing a lot of these African teams. Yeah, talk about that for a minute. Just the the structural problems that the African nations may have in fielding a, um, fielding a successful, consistent team. And it doesn't seem like talent would really be a, a hindrance to them. It seems like it's more or less other stuff. Yeah, I mean... That's, that's, that's really been the problem over here, and it's like we have basic problems like corruption, poor infrastructure. I think 
is the, the problem starts from the grassroots. Um, you have many of many talented kids all around playing this game, but the government doesn't have sufficient um, infrastructure to cater for these guys. So you have young guys who don't have proper education about the game. So most people are just basically on their own. And still, till now, the government is the major, the major, they're the major spenders on the game, they're the major investors. And while there's a few other academies in the on the continent, they mostly aim at, um, they, they're mostly in it for the economic gain. So they know, okay, this African, Africa produces a lot of nice talent, they're probably physical, and some of them are a bit of flair. So most of them just try to get these guys look for a European club for them and ship them out as quickly as possible. So most times you have the really good talents go out. Okay, first of all, you have that most talents aren't spotted. And you have that the ones that are spotted when they go out of the country at young ages and stay and develop at this other country. The really top ones, they hardly ever return. They just maybe stay and play for most of these countries where they where they get based in. And the ones that do return are usually the ones that tend to just want a way to get to walk up or something. So in that sense, the commitment levels are a bit, a bit reduced. And you have other other issues like just the poor poor investments from the country. Although you can't, so to an extent, you can't really compare them to European countries because in Africa we still have other issues like we are still a developing country. So they could argue that the football isn't top top priority, but still we have. Just so many petty issues that just come come in place. Like there's a lot of politics with national team. The coaches aren't giving such a free hand. I know PSG fans are related to this, and you have um, the coach having to agree with the FA before dropping some players from his squad. You have um, many issues like that. But something interesting you see is that if you look at the under 17s or the under 20s. These African teams tend to play well, and I think Nigeria has won about five on the 17 World Cups. I think the last or the, or the one before that, the on the 20 World Cup, Ghana won it. And you'd expect that um, from from these teams, the um, country is able to build more consistent um, squads from there, there on in. But you have problems like players lying about their ages. So now, um, that um, starting to be copied a bit because of science and all of that. But there's just many, many of such problems. And you have that the league isn't so good. So most players, once they have the chance to jet out to Europe, they just do. Even if it's a second division team, they go to. So most of them just struggle. So most of our really top talents just struggle in Europe. And by the time they go out, they maybe they go out too, too early, they just struggle and the uh, the countries aren't able to field like the best talent that they can, and even when they get the talent, because of the poor management, you have petty issues at World Cups like unpaid wages and all of that. The team is just struggle. This player that demoralized, and those are just the things that characterize African football that really hold us down. Really hold us down. It's painful. What, what would you um? So what would you say is the health of the um African um? club team systems so like if we're talking about you know club teams in africa depending on the country which countries do you think have the strongest um club systems and does that have any correlation to their ability to be consistently um 
consistently around the World Cup mix? Yeah, I think I think it does. Um, it seems you have there's some there's some countries like that that stand out. I think South Africa has a relatively they have a relatively good system. Um, seems like seems in north um, countries in north, for instance, like um, Tunisia, likes of Morocco, Algeria. They have relatively good ones, but they can't be compared to the ones abroad, to be honest. And one of the major reasons is because. Well, house football is a popular sport around here, like in these parts. Like, most people don't care about the local leagues. We mainly care about the foreign leagues, and because we have th- things like TV, t- the TV now, we have most of the European games are more accessible, so people just neglect these local leagues. And these local leagues have been unable to grow. And you have that the government is the major um, spenders, the major investors, in, they own most of the teams. So many times when there's a problem with the economy, most of these teams, most of, most of these um, clubs are struggle. You have issues with unpaid wages. You have uh, the coaches not paid, and you just have all of these problems. You have poor, um, poor um, pitches for the teams to play on. So most times, um, the the league impacts most of these countries, and you have like like Egypt, for instance, before now. Most, most players in Egypt used to stay back home. And they just, not, not that they didn't have um, interest abroad, but they just preferred to stay home. It was a thing of pride for them. But while they were winning the um, um, Nations Cup and things like that, it affected them at the World Cup stage. Because at that stage, because they weren't tested to the full level, they couldn't really compete with the big boys. And that level just kind of affects... That low level just kind of affects them at that national, at that world world stage because the level is quite is quite far to be honest. It's quite far. And um, along those lines, what's the um, what is the co- the coverage that? Uh, how do I ask this? Um, what leagues does Africa get? Like, what does the TV uh, situation look like down there? In the sense of who's, you know. How much of international football can these African nations watch, depending on where you are, and depending on sort of um, what kind of television, uh, how the, like how the how does the cable system work down there? How do the channels work? And okay, uh, it, it, how are how are Africans seeing these other leagues? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about Nigeria because that's like the one I'm sure of the most. We um, we have this um, this um, satellite providers who have deals with deals with guys abroad. So it's though it's expensive to watch. Like if you if you had to get a personalized system at home, but we have a lot of viewing centers around. So it's even in the most rural areas you can get a game. And um, the English league is very popular here. That's the most popular. And we get to watch the English league, Champions League, the Spanish league a bit these days. But and other leagues, for instance, the French and the Italian, they are coming up slowly. But watching football is not that it's not that hard yet. Once you have um, a future, even if you can't get access to it at home, you can just pay a bit to just watch it at the viewing center, which is quite popular, popular around here. Okay, um, so yeah, that's um, I guess the the closest sort of thing in that sense would be you go watch the game at a bar, or you go watch the game at a restaurant, but um. What are these viewing yeah. centers like? Are they like bars and restaurants, or? 
Um, you have you have some that like in bars or restaurants, but the, many of them are dedicated to just football. You have many dedicated to just football, and because it's a really big big thing here, so some people use it as a really big business because many people are into this thing. So that's how it basically is. Just get people on Saturdays, especially just get people flooding into these places. And though things can get a bit nasty because we are very passionate about the football and things like that, but that's how it is. Some could just be mainly view centers. That's basically it. That, that's interesting because we, we sometimes have stuff like that around the world. That's not uncommon, but I, I mean, I'm thinking that in a lot more of the rural areas, that's really the only way you would get to sort of see these stars. And let's talk about stars for a minute. Let's talk about, it, it, we, we have, uh, in the United States, we have Mount Rushmore, which is the four, uh, four of the most famous presidents. In your mind, from I, I would say, let's say the years 1970 and 2010. Let's say, let's give it about a 40-year span. Who in your mind are the four most influential African footballers to not you know not just by their play but sort of how they affected the countries in general and how they grew the game in their uh, on their continent. Okay, I think first you have the most obvious opinion as um, George Ware. Yeah, like he was really big here and um, winning the first Ballon d'Or and doing all he did in his country and being president now. That's uh, one of the one of the main, main guys, and I'd go for the guy who I love most of my most of my young years, Drogba. Drogba was really big, really big for the game. Especially CIV, he's a real big big hero there. I remember at one point the country was about to plunge in the civil war, then he had to calm down with some of his teammates, rally them around, had to he, he had to play a big role in pacifying things. Then you have uh, Eto. Eto was a big, big guy. I think he, he also got, he also, I think he was the third best player in the world at some point. So he was, he was really big. Then I go for another Nigerian, that's JJ Okocha. He was, he was big. He was big. And even though he never really won many, um, he never really won a lot of stuff, like internationally, but like his talent was superb. And, a lot of people, a lot of people joke around here that he's the one that that taught um, Ranginio is football and things like that. But those are some of the really big guys. They have other special mentions like Kanu, Yaya, and some other guys. Some other guys. And um, how are um, African footballers treated in their home countries? Are they treated oh, pretty much rock stars, like they are oh, anywhere else? Super, <laughs> they're superheroes. They're superheroes down here. It's like. I don't think because you'd watch I'd watch some interviews of um, guys in Europe just walking on the street and doing interviews and no one is coming to them or even if people come to them it's more organized like in this part is footballers can't try that they can't just walk the streets anyhow people will mob them and things like that they are treated big really big over here <laughs> really big yeah and I would imagine and I and I feel like um, it is sort of it's. It is interesting to think about, and when you talk about a guy like George Weah, George Weah has never been to a World Cup. One of, if he's not the best African player, he's one, two, or three, and he's never been to the World Cup. And you talk about sort of all of the great African players that we've seen in the last 30, 40 years, and there's a lot of them 
that because of the way of where they were born and the way that the countries, you know, their the country's FAs are structured, that there was very little to no chance that they would ever really feature in a World Cup. And you look at a guy like George Weah, and right now you have a guy like um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who will probably never go to a World Cup. Not that he's the greatest player on the on the planet, but he's a good enough player where you think maybe he should be in a World Cup at some point. Just sort of talk about how that's um, that sort of dynamic. If you don't see that in Europe, the best players in Europe play, the best players in South America play in the World Cup. For various reasons, the best players in Africa sometimes do not get to play in the World Cup in their entire careers. Yeah, and that can be very painful for them. Because um, you have like Jojo over there, um, Liberia, and Park. I think Park, when he was playing their football structure, was so poor. Like he reportedly bankrolled them for most of the time. And um, you have someone like Pierre yeah, Emery, this is also painful as well. Because even in the African Cup of Nations, there's even there's hardly, hardly much he can do. And it all still comes down to. It also comes down to how the, um, how these countries properly um, harness their talent. Because most times you see, and it's very common, you see a lot of these guys in France, for instance. A lot of African countries have lost a lot of good players to the likes of France. Because most of these guys, they are most of the really top top guys, just don't want to come back. And you'd imagine if a lot of them came back, these teams would be stacked with talent. And you see stuff like Paul Pogba playing play for France and then his brothers playing for um, Guinea-Bissau, for instance. And the thing, the thing is that you actually understand why most of these players won't want to come back. A lot of them want, want to have their name written in gold. And that was probably... I remember... Um, do you remember the Mbappe Asuikoto um, argument on Twitter? Yes, that was it is. Probably what, what, yeah, that was probably what filled that. And that was like... The major thing, like none of them is a hero actually, but you can understand their both view, viewpoints. Mbappe, for instance, he probably I think he's he's he has Cameroonian roots and he also has Nigerian roots. He looks at it, okay, I'm just good. Why should I go to Cameroon? I probably will never win a World Cup because their whole system is messed up. And you have someone like Asuikoto who probably won't have come to Cameroon if he got selected for another country, and. That's just most of the things killing us. A lot of these countries would actually play better if their management did well. But because of the whole system and things like that, the few who are patriotic enough, like if that's their reason, to come back just tend to have to struggle with all these other guys who are just up there. And that's just painful for the whole thing. The government really needs to wake up and take a stand on things like this. Yes. And let's start talking about sort of the recent World Cups. The first World Cup to be hosted on African soil was in South Africa in 2010. Um, what were your memories of the first ever World Cup on the African continent? Just sort of, was it a pride for the whole? Was it a pride for the whole continent, or was it more just isolated in that part of Africa? I think. It was, it was, it was, um, it was a pride for the whole continent. Um, it was, it was really big for us because it just felt like it was a huge, huge step, and it was big in the sense that 
it just showed that Africa was recognized on the world stage and like more put on the footballing map. Even though you could say most of the fiscal celebration was more felt in South Africa, but the whole the whole continent has felt a bit of pride. You had all those songs going, it's time for Africa and all of that. And many people just felt like that, you'll be a year actually in Ghana going so far and so I was rubbing them off. <laughs> but that's 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 it. it. Was really it was really big, big and it was celebrated celebrated achievement. South Africa was doing that. Yeah, and um, in that World Cup, there were six African nations, and one of them got to the quarterfinals, the farthest any African nation has ever gotten in the World Cup, and that was Ghana. Just talk a little bit about that team and why they were able to do what they were able to do. I mean, that that Ghanaian team was a very, very, very structured team. I think most of their most matches they won by mainly one one goal difference and Asamoah penalty. Asamoah was awesome in that World Cup, and I think mentally they were just they, mentally they were sound. They were, they were ready for it, and they really wanted it. it. Was a lot of patriotic guys really wanting to represent their country. The whole of Africa was behind them at that point, and it was really special, really special what they did. But and that's that's football, you know. It's, you won't really. I won't really say their their um, preparation was so perfect. Or but in football, things can just happen. You just get everything working right for you. And I think that just played played a part. And yeah, individual talent just came to the fore. And that one really was fair, guys. And, yeah, and if people don't remember that that was the game. That was the year where they get to the quarterfinals, and they. By all rights, should have been in the semifinals, and yeah, it was Louis. It was a Luis Suarez intentional handball. Like it wasn't even an intentional handball, like at the top of the box. It was the ball was going in. He sticks his hand out, knocks it down, gets a red card. Ghana misses the penalty, and then eventually would go on to lose in a penalty shootout at the end. Just sort of talk about that game for a minute, because that that that's one of the great travesties in world football history. Yeah, yeah, that was that was so 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 disappointing. But it felt like, like at that point, like Australia, like watching seeing the game from Nigeria and stuff. Like the whole Nigeria was like, we just felt like Ghanaians at that point. And like before, like normally. Nigerians and Ghanaians, we have this typical little rivalry about whose rice is better, like petty things like that. <laughs> but at that point, like the whole of Africa was behind, <laughs> was behind these guys, and it was so painful because ah, like that thing was really big. I don't, I don't think anybody will ever forget that. And in my school at the point, I had we had a a, a Ghanaian guy who was it, and he was distraught for most of it. I remember uh, even. Gian couldn't take it. He could, he could see on his face he was almost running mad when he missed that penalty, and it was so so painful. It was a robbery for the whole for the whole um, for the whole continent. And even though um, seeing it retrospectively, like you get that Suarez is a hero in his hometown, but it just felt like he robbed the whole continent, and that was just painful to see at that point. Yeah, and and I think they'll get back. I think we'll talk about this, but I think an African nation will get back to that point at at, at some point soon. Um, 2014, you had two African nations make it to the round of 16. You had Nigeria and Algeria. So, talk a little bit about that Algeria 
just Algeria in general, because they just seem like an interesting country to me. They seem like they're always um, competitive, if not very good. And Nigeria, for the first time in a long time, getting into the knockout rounds. How is the, more importantly, how is that sort of uh, atmosphere for 2014 and how um, Nigeria was able to respond? Let's just give it a little bit of, um, let's give it a little bit of context here. Nigeria was in a group with Argentina, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Iran. So it wasn't like they were in a group of death or anything, but they got it. They got through on four points. Argentina had nine in that um, nine in that group, and then in the round of sixteen, they lost two nil to France. So just talk about that Nigerian team and sort of um, what pride the nation may have took in that um, performance. Well, that was, I, I don't know, Nigerians, we expect a lot, a lot from our team, to be honest. And uh, we don't really applaud, like, when we saw round of 16, like, that exit wasn't, wasn't really fully applauded by people and things like that. But it was, I think, their progress in the, in the tournament was really, it was um, worth applauding. Because in their first game against Iran, like most people expected that okay, when, once you looked at the group we felt, okay, we'll probably beat Iran. Maybe we could maybe draw or win at Bosnia, maybe lose to Argentina or something. So that was what many people expected. But in the first first game against Iran, I think that was our first draw. We played a nil nil. And most people were just like, What is the meaning of all of this? And a lot of people are just like clamoring for the sack of the coach and all of the Nigerians we are very we are very rational. We don't <laughs> we don't we're not that patient and stuff like that. So it was actually quite good to see them progress during the tournament. They did. I, I can make the easy things look hard and the hard things look easier. I don't know how Nigeria does it, but against Bosnia, to, to see them win was quite impressive. And even against Argentina, we, we actually put up a good fight. I think we went two 0 up before Messi did his thing and rallied his guys around and stuff like that. Yeah. He likes beating us, but. I think the team, the team was impressive, and if you saw the the France game, Nigeria actually played well. I, I, like I, we played, we dominated France for for most parts of the game till I, I mean the individual quality came through in the end and all of that. But and it was quite an impressive tournament because there was also issues like players worrying about their bonuses and things like that. So it was quite impressive for the mental strength. But like as a country. Nigerians didn't really applaud that because I think in our minds we expect a lot more. That's how yeah, you might say it's realistic, but that's like that's like how people yeah. Then for Algeria, Algeria actually was quite impressive. Like Algeria is the, the African team that impresses me the most most times. If you look at around Europe, they have some top guys. They have Mares, they have Slimani, and they play beautiful football. I remember watching that World Cup and I was like. And this team actually plays, they play decent. They have, like, their tactics are right. They play beautiful football. And I think it was Germany who knocked them out, I think. I'm not, I can't, I'm um, not too sure. We can always but check that out. Let's see. Um, it's, yeah. it's in here somewhere. Uh, yes, it was. In extra time, by the way. They took Germany yeah. to extra time. Yeah, and they really play beautiful football, like, so, like, seeing them go out to Germany after playing such a wonderful game was actually quite painful, but, I mean, Germany have the top guys, and it's what it is. But Algeria, they are quite decent. Though they have, I don't know, they usually have issues, and they didn't qualify for this World Cup, which was so painful, but 
Yeah, very beautiful sight to watch. Very beautiful sight to watch. Now, um, let me ask you a question. Um, at one point, Pel, uh, the great um, Brazilian uh, star Pele once said that in his, I think sometime, I think he said in 20 years or in his lifetime, and I don't exactly remember when he said it, but he said that an African nation would win the World Cup. Now, forever is a long time, but let's 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 say the next five. Is there a, and let's lower the expectations. So let's say, do you right. think in the next five World Cups, so that covers the next twenty years, do you think there's a chance that an African nation could make it to the semifinals of a World Cup? And if you yes, if you yes. think so, which of the FAs, which of the confederations, which of the which of the countries, do you think is best set up technically, financially, structurally to do so? That's a very interesting question. Um, I think um, yes, I think uh, an African team could make it to the semifinals in five World Cups. Twenty years is quite a long time, and anything can happen. I think, um, first of all, like you have to just look at it that we have had countries who have come close. Cameroon, Senegal, and Ghana last year. Basically, Ghana in 2010 World Cup almost did. And so I think you could always say in football, anything can happen. And forgetting all of the basics, all of the structure and everything, it's a game of two teams and anything can happen. So that's possible from that standpoint. But from the management standpoint from the FAs and the whole structure of good structures. I think the North African countries, like teams like Egypt, maybe then South Africa also as well, they have a nice setup. They have a nice setup. They, are, they have more investments in their youth, youth system. They have a nice league going on. So though South Africa look like, like outliers right now, but they have something good going on. And and yeah, and as in Nigeria, I'll probably say Nigeria, but to be honest, our systems aren't so, so great going up right now. But like the main top teams, is possible. Like you have teams like Cote d'Ivoire, they always turn out impressive talents. Maybe one of these years to come together. You have Ghana, you have the, the basics, the Nigeria, Ghana, and Cote d'Ivoire is possible. But in terms of a structural and management standpoint, I guess... Teams in North Africa, Egypt, and maybe South Africa. Because, and I and I say that because to to get that far in a World Cup, for the most part, it's really hard to be lucky and get you know it's hard yeah. to be lucky through the group stage and through two knockout round games. It usually takes some sort of plan, some sort of long term planning, you know, a yeah. a, a a young group that can sort of grow together through that structure. So let's talk about um, 2018. Let's talk about the five teams that are going to be representing the continent of Africa in this World Cup. And we're going to start with Egypt. And I guess the, I guess we can call them the Egypt Mo Salas, but (laughs) maybe one of the first times in a while, an African country has a legit, you know, primetime superstar that people have just fallen yep. in love with over the last year. Kind of talk yep. about how Mo Salah has, Mohamed Salah has sort of become Egypt's 
He's become Egypt's star. He's their Ronaldo right now. He's their Messi right now. Maybe not at the same quality, but he's at that... He now has the expectations in his country that maybe those, to a certain degree, Messi and Ronaldo have in theirs. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it's really big and it's just amazing what a year could do for you in football. Like, uh, I remember when he made, the signing was made at Liverpool, I was like, maybe this guy has got some goals and that's it. But this year, he's just gone next level. And I think he has really embraced that's the star factor thing in Egypt and he's really tried to live up to the expectations for them and he has really welcomed the star thing properly. It was really big for them in the qualifying round and he scored the penalty that actually led them to qualification in the for the World Cup. And I think ultimately he's going to have a very big role to play for them and so far he hasn't shown he hasn't seemed like he's shrinking back from responsibility. So it's going to really be really big for them and if they are to do something impressive, which I hope they do because I think if, if they win the Champions League and Egypt does some impressive stuff in the World Cup, it might have a second ballon to Africa. So that would be cool, I think. Yeah, and um, is there anyone else on that Egypt team that... Um, is there anyone else on that Egypt team that, that would scare you as an opposing player? Now, Mohamed Salah on Liverpool is surrounded by legitimate top-flight talent. And I'm just looking at this lot, this roster for Egypt. You have um, Koka, who plays at Braga. You have Mohamed Elneny. You have uh, Ramadan Sobi, who plays at Stoke. But for the most part, a lot of these guys are playing in the Egyptian League. They're playing in the Saudi Arabian League. Um, Ahmed Hagazi plays for West Bromwich. Any, is is there is there enough talent underneath Mohamed Salah? I mean, the group they are in is Uruguay, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. So there's a very good chance they qualify for the round of 16. Yeah. But do they have enough talent to go past that? Is Salah alone Salah. enough? Oh well, to be honest, I don't think I don't think Salah Salah alone is enough for them to really shock teams. To be honest, and looking at them, they're a team who pride themselves on their defensive prowess. They have um, this really top coach who back in the day, I think he led Valencia to two Champions League finals. So they are more of a defensive team. So they are more of this team where the individual talent doesn't really pop out. But like as a unit, they are really solid. And and I think that's what they'll be looking at in the World Cups, really going as a unit, defend hard, and maybe. Pray Salah gets one or two goals. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, yeah. And, and, yeah. Yeah. and that sounds about right to me. Let's talk about Morocco, who are in Group B. Morocco is in a group with Portugal and Spain and Iran. Can Portugal give... Um, can Portugal... No, sorry. Can Morocco give Portugal or Spain any sort of contest? To be honest, that's it's very hard. It's very hard to it's very hard seeing that happen. Um, in in the qualifiers, they actually played beautiful football. They, I think they they didn't concede anything throughout the group stages, and they have a really solid coach. And um, have Renard, he was in the French league for a couple of seasons or so. I think he was with Leo for a while, then he was with Social. So it's a really decent 
decent coach. And I think he has won about two African Cup of Nations in Africa. He's a really big guy. But I don't, I don't really know if, I, I really doubt if they can truly stand the chance against the likes of Portugal. Portugal is hungry, Spain is hungry, and it's really hard to see them coming through. I mean, one of the, the only, one of the only guys really pop out in their side is Benatia. So they have a, a few nice attacking guys, Buffal, ZH, but they are really top, top guys who I, who I think can really, can really, um, take them to the next, next level. It's really hard to see them qualify from that. Yeah, and just you know, just a couple names that pop up for me. Yeah, Ben Asser um, plays at Cone. Um, um, let's see, Nabil Derar plays at Fenerbach. He's thirty-two. Um, it, it seems like a team that's going to be in its own end an awful lot. So I'm, I, I think they may be able to finish above Iran, but um, they may be able to beat Iran. But it's just too hard to get through those top uh, those top two teams. Um, let's go to the next African. You know what? Let's save Nigeria for the end. We'll come to Nigeria at the end. Um, let's right. talk about right. Tunisia. Tunisia is in a group with Belgium, Panama, and England. Talk about Tunisia. Oh, oh that is a very tough group as well. Belgium and England look like the clear favorites, but. We all know that with England, anything could happen. And that's what they might be hoping for. But for them, it's still hard to see them going through. They're a team who, I think they're the highest-ranked African team in that World Cup. I think they're 23rd in the world. But they're a team mainly based on local talent. They already have like real international exposure in that side. So it's going to be very hard seeing them cause an upset. But if they do, that will be, that will be quite impressive. Because even through the qualifiers, they had like a pretty easy group, so they, it's really hard to judge them. But to you know, on paper, it doesn't look like they have much of a chance. To be, to be honest. Oh, and this team is filled with um, league gun players. You have uh, Usama Hadadi, you have Wabir Kazri, you have Nam Sliti, you have um, Eliskiri Basem uh, Srafri. It's it, it's um, again some some African um, some uh, French influence. Obviously, Tunisia once being a um, once being a French colony. So I think they're going to be interesting to watch. I I, I I think there's enough talent that I know that I can at least watch and know that they'll put on a they'll put on a professional effort. And it's it's England can always screw up. So there's there's a possibility. And there's a possibility. Let's get to Senegal, because I'm really intrigued by this Senegal team. Like, I think there's a, I think there's some real, like, legit potential in that group. I know it's a tough group, but if they defend well enough and they unleash that front line, which is one of the best-looking young lines I've, I've, I, I see on any of these sort of uh, middle-of-the-road World Cup teams... I think there's a shot here. I, I mean, you look at Sadio Mane, you have Ismael Assar, you have Kaida Balde, you know, Musa Sow. This is not, you know, this is not a, this is not a bad group. This is a legit, like, this is a legit squad. Yeah. You've got Koulibaly who plays for Napoli. Like, there's some real, there's some real potential here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their, their side is, I think, very impressive. I think going into this World Cup, they, 
for, for the, among the African sides, they probably have the most established players um, abroad. You have Kulibali, like you said, really top guys. And their group is really an interesting one. Colombia, Poland, they, Colombia, Poland look like the favourites on paper, but they don't look like teams that are unbeatable. I mean, there's Japan as well in that group, but I'm sure Senegal will be aiming at the likes of Poland and Colombia. And like we've seen, even for like for Colombia, for instance, their top top guys have come directly higher than what they used to be. And for Poland as well, they they are a well structured side, but it's not impossible for Senegal to get to get something off them. I mean, this is their second time in the World Cup, and the first time they went all the way to the quarters, so anything can happen. Anything can happen. Yes, and I, I like. I just like they're, they're going to be exciting to watch. They're going to be a great team to watch off the counter. Now let's get to the main event here. Nigeria. Nigeria is in a group with Argentina, Iceland, and Croatia. So let me start with this. What is the expectation right now in Nigeria for what this team has the capability of, for what they think this team has the capabilities of doing? I mean, if you ask any Nigerian, they'd expect them to get to the quarterfinals. But definitely, I think every Nigerian expects them to, or most Nigerians expect them to come out from this group. Um, because it looks, apart from, like, Argentina, we've played them a couple of times. They are very, they're a team that's familiar to us. And, but for the likes of Croatia, Iceland, they're very decent teams. But like I said, Nigerians, we view our team very highly and probably say <laughs> we should be Croatia and Iceland, probably. Or maybe get a win or get a draw against one of them. But these are very decent teams. It's, um, there's, there's also a high chance that Nigeria finishes bottom. But recently, Nigeria has been doing quite well, and you have to give them credit. They have, in qualifying, it wasn't really easy, and the group we were put in the group of death. African, African settings. We had Cameroon, Zambia, and the group did really well. And this year, this is like the, I think one of the most balanced Nigerian sides we've seen in a while. Many of these guys are young. You have guys like Moses, you have Iwobi, you have Nice Planet. And the team, actually watching them, they look like a well-drilled team. The well-drilled team. And though no like, player really pops out of the lot, they look like a very, a very solid team that can, that can hold their own. Yeah, I mean, I don't see any team embarrassing us, but many Nigerians will feel at least that we can, if we put the effort in, we can make it to the round of 16 yeah. out of this group. Now, let me ask you two questions. Let me ask you Who's the player questions. that you see being, the, if there's a player on this Nigerian team that steps out of sort of the team collective and becomes sort of the star of the tournament for Nigeria, who would that be? And the second question I would have is, who's who are sort of the underrated players on this team that will also kind of stand out in their own way? So who give me about one guy you think is going to be the breakout star for Nigeria, the one that the Nigerians are going to be talking about, and the three or four guys that are going to have to be essential for this team to make it into the round of 16 and farther. Um, I think one of the guys who Nigeria would need to come up is um, Mikel. Mikel, Mikel Ubi has such a big um, role in the team, and not not just in the 
in the tactical sense, but in this kind of motivational role, he's the captain and he's really the talisman for this team. And if he can really step up and expect most of the players to come up with him, and you have guys like guys like Moses, who if Moses has a wonderful tournament, like that would be really key for Nigeria. And it will be, it will be, isn't it? Isn't so big like for Arsenal, but. Like in Nigeria, he's he's one of the guys who when he comes up, he can light up light up the pitch and do incredible things. But some of the guys who are interesting as well are the defenders. We have these two central defenders. They play so well, so so well, and if they can come up in the World Cup, that would be interesting. That's um, Omero and uh, what's the other guy's name? Trus Ekong. Yeah, they play pretty well, and those are the those are the players Nigeria really need to come up. Then we have other guys like Kelechi who plays in um, Leicester now. And yeah, there's, there's this guy as well in midfield, Indidi. Indidi, he plays in Leicester as well. I think, I think was it last season or this season where he recorded the most tackles or something? Yeah. So, there's really no player who stands out, stands out. But I think if I was to pick one, it's with Mikel because of that talismanic um, impact he has on the team. That would be one of them. Uh, if you had to say now, what would your prediction be? For how far Nigeria goes. If you had to predict now, what would you say? Quarterfinals. Quarterfinals. <laughs> Quarter I, I love the I love the optimism. I think they get to the round of sixteen. I'm not a fan of of Argentina this year. I think Argentina is going to disappoint a lot of people, and I think Croatia is slightly overrated. I can see them getting to the round of sixteen, and depending on who they draw, they could very much get to the quarterfinals. Now. There's a very good chance they would have to draw France in that um, in that round of 16 game. In that case, I would have to my allegiance for France would have to supersede everything. But I would like to see an African. I would love to see an African team get into the into the round of 16 and even to the quarterfinals. Now, before we go, in general, if you had to rate it on a scale of one to ten, one being really poor, really bad. And ten being excellent, we're on the right track. What is the state of African football? I'd go for a number below average. I'd say, I'd say four. Four. I'd say four. Four, just, which means slightly yeah. below an average spot. So you'd say slightly yeah, below. Yeah. Yeah. And why would you say that? Um. To be honest, there's um, some sort of uh, degree of um, of um, growth, but the 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 whole system surrounding that growth is, is really poor. The corruption thing is just big. The, polit- the whole politics around the game is just not there. But there's slight improvements. So in that sense, I'd say you have to give them credit for what they've done. The, the sport isn't as bad as it used to be. Think- are coming up, the leagues are getting better structured now and things like that. But overall, they aren't where they are supposed to be. Doing much better. That's why I give them before. All right. So, um, uh, Daniel, thank you for coming on. Plug your Twitter and what you may or may not be working on in the near future. Sorry, uh, go over that question again. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Just, pl- just, uh, yeah. Sorry about that. Just plug your, um, just plug your Twitters. Tell us where we can follow you on Twitter, and uh, talk about anything you might be working on in the future. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at um, Brigbaha, that's P-R-E-G-B-A-H-A, and um, in the future I hope I hope to get back to writing 
Caucasian talk on your vocals is that big. Yes, and we, we absolutely love having you, and we thank you for coming on for Daniel Pregbaha. This has been your host, Mark Damon. Au revoir for now. Thank you for listening to the World Cup Project. Our next episode will feature PSG Talking contributor David Wood in our discussion of how the current PSG players will fare for their national teams in this season's World Cup. The theme for the World Cup project is provided by Dutch supergroup Orgel Vretten, whose fantastic music you can listen to on iTunes and Spotify. This show is brought to you by PSG Talk, the number one news and opinion site for all things Paris Saint-Germain in English. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for more information on upcoming World Cup project episodes. And as always, this is your host, Mark Damon, saying once again, au revoir for now. <laughs>